Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Following Through the Cracks. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ariana Scholes Douglas, who is the founder of Tula Wellness Center, a unique medical practice in Tucson, Arizona, focusing on women's health and beauty. Today, we're discussing her book, The Menopause Myth, What Your Your Mother, Doctor, and Friends Haven't Told You About Life After 35. So, Dr. Ariana, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what inspired you to, um, I, I guess, go into women's health? I think that's the bigger question. Yeah, well, I started my interest in women's health very early on. Um, as a teenager, I had uh, very severe menstrual cramps to the point where I was incapacitated for at least uh, 24 to 48 hours. And I was very active in school, sports, and cheerleading. And um, I was miserable. And so I remember my mom taking me to different providers. I believe she took me to a pediatrician. I think she even took me to a mental health person at some point. They really didn't quite believe that I was in as much pain and in suffering as much as I was. And then she finally took me to a gynecologist who basically um, prescribed the equivalent of Motrin to me and it changed my life. So I pretty much knew at that moment that, gosh, if you could change someone's life from being, you know, almost suicidal in pain and just desperate to being able to fully function, um, that's what I want to do when I grow up. So that's how I got here. Well, you know, I, I find that interesting that you had to go to so many um, practitioners, including looking into mental health, just because you had such a horrible time every month. Do you find, as a practitioner yourself now, that a lot, a lot of women do experience, you know, their um, doctor not trusting their account of what's happening in their body? Yeah, and that's probably when I really thought about, you know, what this book meant to me coming full circle. It was kind of a recap of the same thing that happened to me. Um, instead of going through into adolescence, I was now going into menopause. And even as a physician, I was, I personally was unprepared and did not have the knowledge that I would expect somebody who, you know, takes care of women would have. And so that also struck me that um, as a gynecologist, I still don't quite understand this. I missed my own diagnosis for at least a couple of years. And so I thought, gosh, if, if I'm experiencing this um, and it really impacted my life, I can only imagine how it's impacting, you know, the average person's life um, that, you know, isn't a, a doctor specializing in women's health. So, um, and then I started hearing the stories of patients who go to practitioner after practitioner and they, their voices just weren't heard. And um, and practitioners overall are not as prepared as uh, as we should be to address the needs of the aging um, woman. Well, and and this is important too because I think um, when people think of the aging woman, we think of and, and my my mother's going to um, be upset with me saying this, but I'm just talking about the stereotype. Um, I was brought up a little bit differently, but I know that society um, we we think of the old crone and she's drying up and, you know, she's, you even talked about this in your book, you know, we're, we're shriveling up and, 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 you know, there's not much left of us. Is this a, a common misconception that a lot of women have when they go through or even talk or think about menopause? Yeah. And I think it's a misconception that, that women have, and it's a misconception that um, providers have is that, you know, in actuality we spend, so much of our time, um, which is good, paying attention to women of reproductive age, but once we are done bearing children, then, you know, the, the uh, I guess, the interest, the uh, dedication, it doesn't seem to be as fervent. So I um, definitely, I mean, I don't, I, there is this stereotype that, you know, you're just kind of tripling up and turning into this older person that's not necessarily useful, but in actuality, I mean, we start our menopause years as early as our late 30s, and, and definitely in our 40s, we're perimenopausal. So 
when I talk about, you know, outside of the reproductive years, the average woman isn't, you know, after 40 isn't going to be childbearing. Um, I mean, certainly there's a percentage, but for the most part, um, after 45, there are a lot of practitioners that just don't even bother to talk about certain issues because they just don't, I don't know if they don't have the skills, they don't have the information, or they, they're just, it's just kind of ingrained in us that it's not a, it's not on the top of the priority list. Um, and case in point is when we bring, for example, women who have had hysterectomies, oftentimes they say, well, you don't need a pap. There are doctors that don't even bother to look in between a woman's legs if her uterus isn't there. But it's like there's there's a lot more there outside of her uterus. Um, and just because she's had a hysterectomy and not able to have children doesn't mean that we don't deserve to tend to our lady parts and everything else in between. Well, you know, I, I, a conversation that I've had a few times on this show is actually the the value on women's health. And I think that you said that in, in what you were saying is, um, you know, if, if we're in our childbearing time and we're trying to have a child and there's a an issue there. Um, we can get more attention on our problems, uh, you know, on our, our menstrual difficulties, on just how we feel hormonally. Um, but other times, just like what you went through, it was difficult to find help because, you know, you're just a child and maybe your account isn't true, the pain isn't as real as you're seeing. Or when we're older, you know, we don't have that goal. We're not trying to procreate. So I, I think society has put less value on what, um, you know, a, a woman's body should be going through. And really, is it important to spend the time and money looking into these problems? Yeah, and I think there's a new wave of interest and people are asking more questions. And I'm noticing just more, you know, interest even in the media. Um, and there are organizations and subspecialties of, of uh, OBGYN that are starting to look at it a little bit more, but we're still far behind where we need to be. Yeah, I definitely agree. Now, if we're um, talking about menopause, what, what does that mean? So defin- the definition really is just the cessation of your menstrual cycle for a 12-month period. So as you go into your 40s, your, your menstrual cycles are going to begin to become a little more um, erratic. Um, for some women, that doesn't actually happen into their 50s, but for, you know, the average patient who's going to be menopausal at 52, that means that at least eight years, five, anywhere from five to ten years, honestly, prior to menopause, she's going to start having some hormonal fluctuations. Um, so by definition, she's menopausal, you know, if she hasn't had a cycle for a year, but um, really... There's no need to separate out perimenopause from menopause because the symptoms are essentially the same symptoms. You can have irritability, the night sweats, the pain with intercourse. Um, all of these things can predate you being, you know, actually menopausal. So that's where the confusion comes in. And um, people, that's why they also believe that it, it probably starts much later, but it really starts a lot earlier than you would think. Um, which is, I think, important to note because I, um, a lot of women, I think, think they're um, it, um, free from menopause until they're in their 50s. Um, and, yep. you know, yeah, and, and I think, you know, you're talking about 30s. And this this is a very common misconception that, you know, this doesn't affect me. You know, I'm only 40. I'm okay. I don't have to think about this right now. Yep, so what a lot of women think. Um, in fact, that's probably, I think that's one of the first sentences in the, uh, the first chapter is that I, I was sharing this, that I wrote the book to a friend, and she was like in her early 40s. She's like, oh, I'm not there yet. And I was like, oh, honey, yes, you are. You have no idea. Um, and I was like, this book is for you. You don't even realize it's for you. Um, but you don't, people don't know what they don't know. Well, and that's true. And I think this is why, you know, you wrote this book, I'm going to guess, is because we don't know. And this is called the menopause myth. So there, from what I gather in your book, there's a lot of myths about menopause. And, and you talk about how women um, aren't sharing information with each other and mothers aren't talking to daughters. Now, my mother was, was very open about her experience, but she did that because her mother wasn't. And she wanted me to understand what I would go through and what would happen for me. And from the account in your book, this is not something that is very commonly talked about in families or even in society or among friends. No, you are actually an ex- exception, at least from the women that I've interviewed. 
and I've interviewed um, hundreds of women around this topic. And even when I speak, I, I ask people, how many of you had a mother, um, a sister, an aunt, you know, grandmother sit down and talk to you about anything about menopause? And a room of 100 women, you know, maybe one person might raise their hand. Um, that's the norm. So um, that's, again, why we need to start having the conversations with our daughters and with our friends so that um, it's not something that's kind of, you know, kept in the dark. There's just a lot of ignorance around. And not only that, so that we can be informed. So we, unfortunately, because we have to inform our providers um, to care for us better and to understand what it is. And, and um, they're not, they, we are not, are not doing that as, as well as we can. So at this point, I, th- I think it really is up to the patient, unfortunately, to get as uh, much information, be as armed as possible, because not only are doctors not aware, there's, there's even a lot of just misinformation, like, and just uh, some of the stories I've heard of people just dis- dismissive, um, telling them it's not possible for them to be perimenopausal in their, you know, in their early 40s. Um, just uh, Really, a dis- dismissal is probably one of the, the biggest ones. And, just, and the average OBGYN doesn't have time it's here in America. Um, the USA, they don't have as much time to sit and talk and, you know, really have this dedicated conversation to this next phase of life. But it's, it's a huge deal and it's a huge change. Well, and, and I think it's something a lot of women are scared of. And then because of that fear, I feel like they're also, uh, you know, don't want to reach out because there's some denial. Um, you know, it also means we're getting over, we're reaching another phase, and we've been in this phase since puberty. So, you know, we don't want to think about reaching the next part of our lives because that means we're older that means we are the crone that means we're drying up that means you know things are gonna suck from now on you know sex life our bodies that kind of thing we're gonna gain weight I think this is a lot of fears that women have when when they're talking about this phase Um, I don't know if that's something that um, you've experienced as well yeah, I think um, between the fear and the ignorance, we just we can't really get educated. And um, and again, it's it's all about perspective, right? It's all about are you going to look at this as, oh my god, you know, which a lot of women do, like, oh my god, yes, it's like the menopause is coming, the menopause is coming, and you know, it's a black hole that you might you might come out okay on the other end, you might not. But in actuality, I mean, if it's if we can change our perspective. Um, really enter that space from a, a space of gratitude and um, creativity and anticipation, um, then we just change our own narrative. So, I mean, it's whatever narrative you want. If you think it's that time where you're going to dry up and life's going to suck, then you're going to dry up and life's going to suck. Um, but if you're interested in really um, knowing the power of this phase of your life um, and how as you're Hormones change, your brain chemistry changes, and, and that even empowers you in certain ways. So if you're, if you're interested in embracing how you can be empowered and, and how you can really go forward in your best way, then and it can be a, a lovely journey. That doesn't mean it's not without some bumps and bruises, but it's all about, it's all about the journey. And so if we think that it sucks, then life, life will suck, and... Um, there's not there's just not a lot of joy in that and I I just choose not to approach it that way um, I, I like the word empowered. I, I think that was a really good um, word for this because if knowledge is power. So if we have the knowledge about what's happening on our bodies and we start to experience the depression, anxiety or insomnia or night sweats, we understand what those are and, and we can we can be more on, um, on top of what's happening and, and what we're experiencing. So we can talk to our doctors about, you know, if we know, oh, this insomnia might be part of the hormone changes I'm experiencing Um, because I think this is something women aren't always aware of we can go talk to our doctors and say okay so I think that there's some changes happening and I need help instead of suffering in silence not understanding what's happening in our bodies yeah it's it's definitely um, again knowledge is is power and um, again, the only thing I would caution, and it's it's frustrating, but the reality is 
don't assume, and that's a myth, that's one of the myths, is assuming that your gynecologist is well prepared to talk to you about this. And um, that probably is <laughs> one of the bigger myths, and it's um, a reality that you, again, need to get this information, know for yourself what, what this might look like. Um, and, and, again, remember that, you know, how do you want to go through this? Because you, you can imagine the tumultuous teenage years when our hormones were just doing crazy stuff. Well, this really mimics our preteen teenage years in terms of the hormonal fluctuation. So it's like, you know, trying to get through life, you know, now you have job and kids and whatever, family or other responsibilities, and but you, you have these hormones that are kind of literally driving you a little crazy or a lot crazy and making it difficult to sleep and just irritability, uh, depression, anxiety. Um, just trying to manage that um, and be ignorant, is it's, that's a really difficult task. So, again, it's so important to be aware of what could be happening so that you're not in the dark because now you're in the dark with anxiety and depression and, and trying to manage life. And that, that's not, there's nothing fun about that. Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Dr. Ariana Scholes-Douglas, and she's the author of The Menopause Myth, and we'll be back shortly. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on Instagram. Make sure you follow us and comment on our pictures from behind the scenes at our radio shows, live events, and around the network. We want to see what you have to share as well. Check us out on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio. We're on the pulse of the world with great shows and hosts. The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel is also on Twitter. We've got ideas to keep you healthy, breaking health news, and more. Follow us on Twitter at Voice AM Health. That's at Voice AM Health. Do you ever wonder if you're taking the right vitamins and supplements? What about prescription medicines you may be taking? Is it a dangerous or effective combination? Now you can find out by tuning in to your daily dose with host Doreen Doucette. We'll discuss the proper ways that supplements and natural therapies can benefit your health. You'll also hear about the best vitamin brands to use, hear from experts, and more. Listen live Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Uh, we're back from the breaks. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Ariana Scholes-Douglas, and we're discussing her book, The Menopause Myth. So uh, what is the first myth that you would like to dispel? Um, well, the first myth is um, really around when menopause starts and what it looks like. So, uh, again, we spoke that the typical... Um, the average woman, I should say, will be menopausal around 52, and um, but she doesn't realize that um, that means really as you know early if you be 42, 45, you could be menopausal and that's completely normal, meaning you haven't had your menstrual cycle for a year. Um, so those symptoms, it's not like you're going to go from you know just premenopausal to menopausal without the symptoms. So you could go into your menopause menopause phase, so to speak, um, having not had a menstrual cycle for a year, but, you know, for two or three years prior to that, you were having hot flashes, 
And so people think, oh, I'm menopause, and then I'm going to have these symptoms. But the symptoms actually predate when you are actually menopausal. And that predate can be, again, early as late 30s, early 40s. Um, yeah, like what we spoke about before the break, that's a time people aren't really thinking about it. Now, of course, everybody talks about how the hormones are changing. So what's actually happening with our hormones when this, when this change happens? Um, well, that kind of leads us to another myth, which is that um, people think, well, the main reason you have these symptoms of menopause is because your estrogen levels are going down. Uh, and your estrogen levels are declining but really what happens prior to that is that we become what's called anovulatory, meaning we're not ovulating with each menstrual cycle. And with that ovulation, typically our body would make a cyst called the corpus luteum that would make progesterone, which helps to balance the estrogen that we're also making. But when we're not ovulating, we don't make that corpus luteum, we don't make the progesterone. And so progesterone, though, as a hormone, is very stabilizing. It's, 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 a, it's more calming um, and kind of when you compare it to how it works in the body to estrogen. We even get progesterone to pregnant women to kind of calm their uteruses, uteri down uh, if they're like in preterm labor. So progesterone also helps uh, with our sleep cycle. It helps um, with anxiety. Uh, so women uh, start out with having really issues with progesterone metabolism first, and that, again, leads to irritability, anxiety, uh, issues with sleep, and those are commonly the first symptoms that women experience, not so much the hot flashes. The hot flashes are there, but hormonally, they are happening a little later because our estrogen levels start to decline, and, you know, our estrogen levels kind of relative to where they are on our baseline, when they decline, that's when it's theorized that we'll have these hot flashes. Um, but there, there's really no exact understanding as to why we get these uh, power surges, as we call them. But um, at the end of the day, these hormonal fluctuations between decline in progesterone, decline in estrogen relative to, you know, wherever your baseline is, and even um, testosterone, um, which is a very important uh, hormone in this whole process. And a little-known fact is that we actually, as women, make more progest- more testosterone than we make estrogen. Um, but we just don't, we don't metabolize our testosterone the same way. We don't use it the same way, obviously, as, as men. But at the end of the day, it's just as important in that kind of trifecta of, of hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. They're all in concert. So um, one thing that that women um, talk about, of course, is hormone replacement therapy, which was um, really big quite a while ago, and then people became afraid of it. So what's going on there? I think this is one of the myths that you talk about, and there is a a lot of of, um, information that conflicts with itself on hormone replacement therapy. Yes, it's a great question, very good point. Um, So... I always like to start off by saying I'm not a hormone pusher, but um, hormones can be a, a wonderful, beautiful thing for some people. Um, so before I even like to talk about hormones, I, I at least like to, to know that um, we don't start with that. I always start with diet and what you're putting in your mouth because that generally is your number one drug. Your number one um, food is the number one drug that we start with and obviously our stressors and the rest of our life, which ultimately impact our hormones. But at the end of the day, um, hormone replacement for some women can be really a life, it, it really can change a life. So a quick anecdote is that I had a patient, she came in, she literally, she came in a company with her husband, she was in tears, she was basically a hot mess, literally and figuratively, um, and she was one of the few patients that, uh, for the Seeing her for the first time, I was just like, I'm just going to give her some estrogen. Like, I'm going to give her some hormones just because I can't even get through to her. Um, and she was just depressed, anxious, couldn't function. She came back a month later after being on the hormones, um, and she had so much more clarity. Uh, she was able to now really, we could start working on the real issues, which were her stressors, her diet, and everything. So fast forward several months. Um, she's still on the hormones, but she's been able to transform her diet and, and really the way her whole family eats. Um, the hormones at the end of the day represent a quality of life. And so 
if um, for some women they um, are having drastic symptoms and they really haven't been able to get around it, then I definitely uh, think it's an option to consider. Um, the pendulum has shifted. There was a really big study, um, um, and at, really at the end of the day, they reanalyzed that data, realized that they analyzed it wrong, and that really the hormones aren't quite as bad as we thought they were, um, and so they really kind of started to stratify stratify the different groups. They kind of lumped all these women into one group, but when they looked at younger women, they noticed that they actually did well or at least weren't harmed by it had any adverse um, effect. Um, but when they started giving estrogen to, you know, 60-plus, 70-year-old women, those were the women that had the issue. So really we just had to pull it back and look more critically at the data and understand when and why hormones would be a good option. So hormone replacement, generally speaking, during the perimenopausal years for a short period of time, really has it has mostly a beneficial impact. It's a benefit to bone health. It can be a benefit um, just overall to mental health, um, decreasing risk, whatever, for heart disease, Alzheimer's. We know that certain exposure to estrogen at certain times is good, but after a certain period, it's probably not as good. So um, there's a lot of confusion there. I probably just made it as clear as mud, um, <laughs> but that's kind of <laughs> where it is. So when people ask me, hey, at the end of the day, should I take these hormones? And I just, my question is, you know, it's all about quality of life. And if you want to maximize your quality of life, then you have to do the work through nutrition or Chinese medicine or whatever those things are that are going to help balance you out. You know, or, you know, take the pill. Um, there's a whole different way. There are all kind of different ways to get to the same endpoint. Um, but at the end of the day, hormones tend to be that replacement, tend to be an easier fix for a lot of people. Um, but again, don't recommend it. It's, everybody doesn't need it. In fact, most people could go without it if they were willing to adjust their lifestyle. Well, I think that you and I, um, you know, practice very similarly. Um, you know, it's it's about the individual in front of you. And, you know, I do explain to people that, you know, your hormones are supposed to decline. This is what happens as we get older. But you've got a period of time where you're uncomfortable. So what is going to get you through that and what works best for you in this moment so that you can get to that point <laughs> where you feel more comfortable with your life and, and you know, without being a lot of women are very uncomfortable and, um, you know, it is necessary and uh, some things just don't work for some people where they work for others. Right. Um, so you meant, you, yeah, you mentioned um, diet and you said that's your first stop with people. What does that um, look like for menopause? What should people do? Um, well, I talk a lot about and feel very strongly about what I call the food elimination diet. Uh, and basically, it's the elimination for a short period of time of the most kind of inflammatory foods in our diet, which would be gluten, dairy, sugar, corn, soy. Um, and, you know, one person's <clears throat> um, cure is another man's poison. So, um, uh, case in point, um, I have an autoimmune condition. So with autoimmune issues, you generally um, sometimes, not always, nightshades uh, as a food uh, can cause more of an issue, more inflammation. And uh, when I did the food elimination diet, which was basically a month of eliminating those um, things I listed, gluten, dairy, sugar, corn, soy, um, the doctor I was seeing also recommended me take out the nightshades, which I thought was stupid because I was like, well, <laughs> tomatoes, those are vegetables or fruit or whatever you want to call them, but aren't tomatoes good for you? And so she had to explain kind of how nightshades affect um, individuals with autoimmunity. And this was probably 20 years ago. Um, and so the first food that I put back is you, you introduce each food um, separately. So if you, for example, I was like, I know that I'm not going to be allergic or tomatoes are, I know that's not a problem in my life. So that was the first food I introduced. And that's when I realized how um, I was so impacted by a tomato. By the next day, um, I could barely get out of bed. I had my, my I had total body fatigue, headache. I couldn't think clearly. 
And um, I generally think it's a wonderful tool to show people how an individual food really impacts them. Um, and for those who are willing to do it and really, you know, do the work, because you can't really cheat on it, you're, you just take it out of your system, and then you introduce it back one at a time. And then you'll really be able to see. But the average person, when they take out gluten, dairy, sugar, alcohol, corn, um, they're just going to feel better. Uh, and that doesn't mean you can never eat it, but it does increase your awareness. So I just ask people to be aware of how food is impacting them. And for menopause, that's going to be specifically sugar uh, and alcohol because those two things tend to really drive up um, hot flashes, the irritability, the issues with sleep. Um, the whole blood sugar um, axis is just kind of thrown off. So that's how food can be a huge part of managing it. And women, for example, they don't realize that glass of wine that you have at night, that's what's causing your hot flash. So they're not happy to hear that, but if you maybe that means you drink half a glass of wine as opposed to two glasses. But at least you have the awareness that wine is probably not your friend, at least right now. Um, well, and, I, you know, I definitely have seen this. Um, about 10 years ago, I had two sisters who were going through menopause together, and um, I did that exact diet with them, and they were um, symptom-free unless they had beer. And they would come in and tell on each other, which I thought was quite amusing, except that they were having, <laughs> beer toge- they were having the beer together. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was, it was quite cute because they would, you know, hang out together and then tell me that so-and-so had beer. Um, and I was, you know, I I told them that it was really important for them to assess for themselves how they felt. And, um, you know, you can get away with something sometimes and you're the one gauging the how uncomfortable that you are. So just like you said, be aware of how food makes you feel. And you woke up the next day and you could barely get out of bed, you know, and, and sometimes it's not that extreme. And sometimes we have to eat more of it to experience that. Or sometimes we know right away, but to to be aware of of what that's making you feel like so that you have the control over how bad you're going to feel when you do those things like have a beer with your, your sibling. Exactly. Um, it's like at least you're, you're, going, you're going into it with eyes wide open as opposed to, you know, like, oh, God, why do I feel so bad? And just not, never connecting the dots that, yeah, you just you had a, a six-pack. Um, and beer... May have you know may have represented the the wheat uh, may represent just the you know yeast uh, alcohol whatever ferment whatever however they make the beer um, there's just all types of things there that could go sideways and have you not feeling so great um, but yeah but for me I realized yeah I can't drink wine but I can drink vodka um, so vodka didn't bother me as much of course I I couldn't have like ten ounces of vodka but um, I just didn't feel the same um, issue, and I think uh, that really spoke more to the blood sugar um, than anything else. But alcohol, at the end of the day, for a lot of reasons, can trigger some not-so-pleasant symptoms. uh, Um, Well, well, thank you. I think that's um, important. We're going to take a quick break so everybody can think about that. Um, We're talking today with Dr. Ariana Scholes-Douglas, and we're discussing her book, The Menopause Myth, and we'll be back shortly. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. 
Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ariana Schultz-Douglas. So, Dr. Ariana, in your book, you talk about, um, you have a whole chapter on fatigue, and you talk about thyroid and adrenal problems, and those are probably separate issues. So, maybe just talk about how the thyroid affects people as they're, women as they're going through menopause. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. That's actually um, one of my favorite chapters in the book, um, and where I get actually a lot of feedback. People who weren't going through menopause were like, oh my God, I had a thyroid issue. So um, hypothyroidism, which is low-functioning thyroid, affects women you know, more disproportionately than men as a lot of other diseases. Um, but um, a lot of patients um, are walking around with less than optimal functioning thyroid and not realizing it. And the most common Oh, my gosh, one of the most common things I see in the office is that I talked to my endocrinologist and they told me my thyroid was normal. Um, so if I had a dollar or however many dollars for every time, somebody told me that. Um, needless to say, I have a lot of money um, <laughs> because I feel like endocrinologists, and again, I, I'm, I know that there's not a lot of positive things I've, I've said about the medical field in, in general, but I... I, you know, obviously there's a, a time and a place for how we practice medicine, but in general, endocrinologists, uh, I feel, um, have kind of really done a disservice to a lot of patients in, in this area because um, we're using the standard um, measurement, which is we look at thyroid-stimulating hormone, and using that measurement, um, there's a range, right, that people can fall in anywhere from 0.45 to 4.5. But the average patient is optimally functioning with a TSH of probably less than 2. Um, so, But what's happening is that we're waiting for patients to kind of be on that extreme end of the spectrum to be like, okay, now we can really address your thyroid. So there's, there's a disagreement in the medical community as to what is the optimal TSH um, that we should be using as a reference. Um, but that was another thing that I experienced personally, which was I have Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune condition affecting the thyroid, and um, that can also affect your labs. But I didn't understand any of this, and I kind of was still in the mindset of a conventional medical doctor, and, oh, my TSH looks normal. But in actuality, it really wasn't normal, and it wasn't until I went and saw more alternative or holistic naturopaths that were like, oh, no, this is not where you want to be with your thyroid. So it changed my whole life. It changed my practice of medicine. And um, I want to educate women in particular that know what your numbers are. If you're feeling fatigue, um, hair loss, constipation, always cold, um, just um, not having the clarity of thought, oftentimes um, it can mimic symptoms of menopause, and it's actually your thyroid. So know what a TSH value, um, what it should be. Know what those numbers are. I talk very specifically about them in the book. And then you know, find a practitioner that is willing to work with you around that because, again, the average um, primary care doc and endocrinologist um, here in the States is, is not going to treat unless they see a TSH that's really high. But at that point, you're, you know, for a lot of people, they're just, they're not functioning very well at all and their quality of life is diminished substantially. So I talk a lot about that in the book. I feel very passionate about that, as you may or may not be able to tell. Well, I'm I'm actually glad you brought it up because it's a conversation that I have every day. And, um, you know, I had somebody shadow me a few months ago and she 
she was like, you talk about thyroid with everybody. I'm like, yeah, because they're just like what you experience. There's information missing on, on the conventional level and the quality of life isn't there. And, and, and I think, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think the, um, some studies show that 80% of people with thyroid problems actually have Hashimoto's, but are going undiagnosed because it's not even tested. Um, I, yeah, it, and and you know I think that it, doctors are are very very resistant to test for Hashimoto's. Even if somebody knows that they have Hashimoto's, they can't get any follow up. And it seems to me that we're just slipping through the cracks here, um, and uh, you know being ignored. And of course, we're fatigued, like you said, constipated, dry skin, our hair is falling out, our sex lives are down, and and very very uncomfortable. But then again, I think this goes to is, you know, this woman in front of us, is she just complaining um, because her TSH is normal? This can't be her thyroid. And then off women are sent to suffer for a long time until it gets more severe. Yeah, or put on anti, you know, depressant as opposed to, you know, treating it from a functional medicine approach. Like, what's the problem? I mean, from a truly functional medicine approach, then we go even deeper to, you know, again, from a Chinese um, medicine perspective. Um, so it can be through diet. It could be through uh, hormone replacement of the thyroid. It could be through whatever ways that um, are needed, acupuncture, to um, get your body back in line and your thyroid functioning. But you're so spot on with the Hashimoto's. Um, I'm just amazed that the average patient I see who has a thyroid condition, has they don't even know what Hashimoto's is. They've never been tested, and they don't understand. Like, that's, again, where uh, inflammation and the diet are so huge and stress um, because, you know, you could be, I mean, the same patient I was telling you about that I put on hormone replacement because she was a hot mess, she also had thyroid disease. Well, she didn't realize at the same time she had Hashimoto. So she came in with, uh, she was in menopause. She, her, her thyroid was, com- I mean, like one of the worst thyroids I'd ever seen as well. Uh, her TSH was like 17 or something crazy. Yes. And um, so we got her all tuned up, and about six months later she comes back, and she's, she's feeling very irritable. And she's like, I need more progesterone. I need more progesterone. I was like, mm, really? And I said, well, let's do your labs. Let's check everything again. Well, come to find out, her Hashimoto's had now kind of um, – um, decrease, meaning, you know, the inflammation, the flare that she was having earlier had now um, subsided. So her antibodies went down. So her thyroid was actually functioning better. So she was actually now being overtreated. So I had to lower her thyroid dose, not give her more progesterone, but I had to lower her thyroid dose because now she was hyperthyroid and she was having symptoms of that. And that's how the perfect example of how everything overlaps because, you know, as an average patient, you're not going to be able to know, do I need more progesterone? Do I need less thyroid? I mean, that is an easy thing for the average person, even a, a clinician necessarily to figure out unless you really understand how food, inflammation, stress, all of this affects autoimmunity. If you don't even know or you're not even paying attention to the fact that the patient has an autoimmune disorder, um, then you can't really help them um, improve without dealing with the underlying issue, which is, you know, inflammation. So, yes, I think I went off on a tangent, but <laughs> yes, to what you said. It was a good tangent, though, because, um, you know, I, I hope women listening realize um, that you and I are talking about this because it's so common. And it's really, really important um, if you if you have a thyroid problem or you're just experiencing some of those symptoms to get your book because you explain Hashimoto's in it and then talk to your doctor about it because they're not going to screen for Hashimoto's if your TSH is normal. But it's important to understand that you can have these um, antibodies towards your thyroid happening in the background with a normal looking TSH for, and I think the average is about 10 years before as your thyroid is getting damaged and you have all these symptoms and then your TSH will start to show up and who wants to go through 10 years of being uncomfortable without an answer so if you can right. get your doctor right I, I wouldn't um, so so your book you explain that really really well and I think it's important for for women to start at, at anybody really it's not just women but to start asking those questions so that the awareness can start to happen 
happen. And this is how common it is. I talk about it every day, and I'm sure you do as well. Um, thyroid problems are, are on the rise. I think they're um, you know, in every family and whether or not Hashimoto's is there, we don't know. A lot of people are going undiagnosed. Undiagnosed for sure. Um, so you talk about adrenal fatigue as well. What's that? Well, adrenal fatigue, I think, is a, a little more nebulous and a little harder to pin down. Um, you know, there are some labs that we can look at that kind of give us clues um, for sure. But, I mean, it's really just constellation of lots of, of symptoms. But at the end of the day, you know, our adrenals are there to help us respond to stress. Um, and, you know, stress, as they described it, you know, prehistoric times is the, you know, saber-toothed tiger. Um, now stress is, you know, that boss you hate, the traffic, you know, a bad relationship, um, just not sleeping, um, and even the foods and the environmental stressors, just the news, you know, <laughs> that stress. So that is kind of bombarding us constantly. Our bodies really aren't designed, uh, our adrenals for sure, really weren't designed for us to kind of have this constant drip, drip, drip of stress. And so over time, um, as opposed to those sporadic kind of bursts of um, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and all the things we need to kind of get our fight or flight on, the you know, over time, that's kind of a chronic thing. And so over time, our adrenals um, aren't able to produce um, and drive and give us the same push of energy that we need. Um, and also, just chronically, they're depleted. So um, this can manifest in different ways depending on where we are in that whole cycle of adrenal fatigue. So early on, we might be kind of what we call uh, wired but tired. So there's a lot of kind of anxiety irritability, but there's still inability to sleep, and that has everything to do with kind of our cortisol levels and how they're increasing um, at times when they really should be decreasing, specifically, you know, at night. So we can't quite turn it off, and then our world is even more complicated through, you know, the electronics and everything that we're just constantly stimulating ourselves with. So the fatigue, you know, can be measured through a few different hormones, and really it's more of the symptoms that you're having and ruling out other things that would cause it and really doing things that at the end of the day are going to boost uh, the adrenals back up. So um, adaptogens are some of my favorite tools, like ashwagandha um, is a very uh, popular one. So things and supplements, um, again, anything from Chinese medicine to supplements to even certain foods that are going to help uh, support your adrenal and um, help you, but that is a, a harder thing to fix. It's not as easy sometimes to me as a thyroid. The thyroid to me is pretty straightforward. It's like, yep, there's your TSH, that's this, there's, there's your Hashimoto's. Um, I can kind of fix that. Adrenals take a while because there's just there's so many levels of stress that we experience, and you can't make that go away. And you just basically we have to help our bodies respond better to it. Well, and I think um, one thing that you talk about at the end of your book is um, self-care, um, which will help with that stress and adrenal fatigue and everything else. But I think that was an important point to put in there because most women, um, you know, they want to take care of everybody else and they're the last priority on their list. And um, I'm sure you have this conversation as well, but I tell them, you know, what's going to happen to your family if you can't help them anymore? You are the hub, so you are important to have the downtime and to do the things that you need to do to to recover and re regenerate yourself. Yeah, and, and as women, we you know, we like to carry that badge around like look at me, you know, I'm I got two kids and uh, I own my business and I'm you know, I'm doing all of these things and you know, we almost brag about how tired we are. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to fill up your own cup first and it's 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 not easy because um, sometimes our partners, you know, don't always understand. Our kids may or may not understand. Our friends. Um, there was a period of time when I used to really almost religiously go to uh, Miraval, which is, a, you know, one of our better spas here and even in North America. And, um, it's you know, it's a, it's a little pretty penny. But I would go and just spend a day or two, and I would feel very renewed and refreshed. And that's just what I'd love to do for me. Um, but, yeah, sometimes I get the side eye 
from friends like, oh, she's going to Miraval or even my husband. Um, and so I had to really like push beyond that and be like, yeah, but, you know, and remember. But it's it's so easy to do for other people than it is for ourselves. And, and then there's that stress of the resentment, right? Then you're like, uh, you're mad because you, you know you deserve it, but you can't quite prove it. Um, so you kind of go along. Um, but then there's there's that. So there's at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a several thousand dollar spa day. It could be just a hot bath in the morning. I mean, that's kind of taken the place of my spa days these days. But, you know, just knowing I have a moment. Um, I have a little sign on my door now. that says, do not disturb. When I say do not disturb, that means do not disturb. Um, and even if it's just for five minutes that I have to just sit and be in my space, uh, I just have to take that time, figure out what brings me joy, so I can fill my cup up because it just doesn't it doesn't feel good anymore to give when when you you literally have nothing there and that's exactly how it feels it's how I feel when I come home and I just tell my friends or family I don't I don't have anything left for you today so yeah. this is where I am my cup yeah, is empty I, today don't look at me <laughs> I think I think it takes a, a lot of maturity to get to that point in our lives we do like to burn ourselves out um, now you talk about everything we've talked about today is in great detail and very easy to understand in your book so if somebody wants more information how can they get a hold of you or your book Sure. So the book um, is on our website, Um It's also on Amazon and I think Barnes & Noble and all the other major book outlets. Um, and in terms of contacting me, um, you can contact me through the website, DrAriana.com, for more information um, or can just email me uh, directly uh, at... Um, Dr. Ariana at dreariana.com. <laughs> so it's pretty simple. Um, Perfect. And yeah. Okay, great. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me today at a great conversation. And I think it was really informative and, and important for anybody, not just women, but anybody who knows a woman to listen and understand what's going on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so everybody, today we are talking with Dr. Ariana Scholes Douglas, and her book is called The Menopause Myth, What Your Mother, Doctor, and Friends Haven't Told You About Life After 35. Thank you so much for um, listening to our conversation today. If you want more information about my story, you can find that on my website at dr-risk.com. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and you can always send me an email at anantacalgary at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week.